Thank you, brother. Certainly, if our music is right, it's going to go a long way in allowing that house to stand on the rock. I think you'll understand a little more of that by the time we're done with this. This is probably the message that I struggled the most with, maybe the most volatile message you'll hear in this weekend. And again, I just want to assure you, um, if there's disagreement here, as you'll hear in the last message, hold your fist out to God and open it. Don't hold it out to me, but open your fist to God and let Him take from your hand what He wants, and then you can have an open hand to receive what He gives you. And it's God that will be the great revealer to your heart. It's not me. I'll give you truth. I'll give you facts. I'll give you my opinion, and yet it's still up to you. But the future of the church lies in a balance, and I believe in this day and age we're at a very critical time in history, and I think you'll see that in the message this afternoon. We're going to move very quickly once again. Um, I'm starting with the early church fathers, and when I use that term, I use it in a very loose way. Because the early church fathers were not all that they should have been. But it's very interesting, on this subject, they were very, very united. Um, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, those that persecuted the Anabaptists, they all were in full agreement with what I'm teaching this morning and this afternoon. So we come to the period of the first century. Justin Martyr, he understood Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 like I taught it this morning. And he said that the use of singing with instrumental music was not received in the Christian churches as it was among the Jews. That was, uh, his life was lived from 100, 100 AD to 165. Clement of Alexandria, I believe we respect him, uh, as well as Justin Martyr. He said, leave the instruments to those who fear the gods and are intent on idol worship. Praise him, praise him with the harp. The tongue is the harp of the Lord and the lute, and with the lute praise him. The lute is the mouth moved by the spirit. Now I want to interject this. As it is in all of history, people take things to an extreme. And while they got the doctrine right, they didn't always practice what the doctrine said. You'll see that in the life of Ulrich Wingley and how he interpreted these passages. Origin in 185 to 264, I think we question the spirituality of this man somewhat. He was a bit of a maybe a bit of a heretic. But he lived from 185 to 264. He was a student of Clement of Alexandria, and he clearly saw that the lyre is the body and the harp is the spirit, and he who makes melody with the mind makes melody well. We agree with that. Even Constantine, uh, the emperor who started Christianity as a state religion, he loved the fancy buildings, he loved the cathedrals, he loved the art, he loved it all. And yet he never thought of bringing instruments into public worship in the church. Augustine of Hippo, um, we consider him to be an heretic. But what's interesting, if you study Augustine, Augustine had two faces. There was a day that Augustine was much more sound than he was when he died. Uh, but Augustine said, let none turn his heart to instruments of the theater. And he too helped to stem the tide of bringing instruments into the church. And I say that term, church, loosely when it comes to Augustine. Gregory the Great was the father of the Gregorian chants. Interestingly enough, those are coming back into vogue. Um, Young people are listening to some of that, and I think some of our Mennonite choirs are singing some of that. Um, Interesting that that's coming back into history, coming out of these dark ages, when, uh, or in these dark ages, some of that was going on. I consider the day we live in to be the new dark ages, and uh, we're singing again the songs and the style that they sang in those days. It was well known in the 7th century that they, these chants were sung a cappella uh, in the Catholic Church. Now in 757, um, Constantine V sent an organ as a gift to King Pepin, and uh, he specified that this was not allowed to be used in the church. I thought that was interesting. The organ faced strong opposition for hundreds of years, and it was not readily accepted in any church, whether it be Protestant or Catholic, until the 1200s. 
So we're about 1,200 years after Christ, we're starting to see a breakdown of what I would believe to be true worship. And they're beginning to bring the organ, bring the harp, bring the lyre. They're bringing it right into, first of all, the Catholic Church, and after that it came into the Protestant Church. The abbot of Yorkshire complained in the 1200s about the adverse effect of the organ and other instruments upon the human voice. He said this, Let me speak now of those who under the show of religion, the business of pleasure, whence hath the church so many organs and musical instruments. To what purpose, I pray you, is that terrible bellowing of bellows, expressing rather the cracks of thunder than the sweetness of the voice. Many historians agree that musical instruments were not part of the Catholic Church or the Protestant. They weren't fully accepted until uh, the 1300s. So we have documented history that musical instruments were refused and vehemently opposed um, for at least a thousand years after Christ. That is the pattern, and that's accurate history. During the 14th and 15th century, or the, the 13 or 1400s, uh, in spite of great opposition, um, the organ made its way into strongly into the Roman Catholic Church and became an important part of liturgy. Uh, during the 16th century, or the 1500s, other in instruments were added in addition to the organ. I think we see a pattern in history. It started with the organ. Once the organ got into the door, and it was a pretty big object to contend with in those days, once that got in the door, it paved the way to bring everything else behind it. I may forget to say this, and I want to say it now. There are some churches that I respect that do use a light organ, and they do use a light accompanied of a piano. And it seems that they've been able to maintain that spirit that is given to us in Ephesians and Colossians. I don't recommend it. I think we're making a big mistake to go down that road, but it does seem like there are some that are familiar with rhythm patterns today. They know what's dangerous. They know what's not. They've been able to maintain a, a, a pure worship in that way. However, I think it is a doorway that leads us down paths that we ought not go, and I think it's a dangerous thing to do. The Dark Ages, um, and I... Show that here as a, a dip in history. It was a time when worship became an experience for the purpose of gratifying the senses. And I think we can safely say by looking at history and looking at what's happening today that when men worship their feelings, there is no end or no bottom to the pit that we walk in. And I think probably the Dark Ages were caused by an ideology of a worship of self and a worship of the senses and uh, people were gratifying their physical senses. They were leaving a life of faith, and they were embracing things that they could touch, they could feel, um, they could hear. Uh, it was something that, that gave them a sense of reality that they could feel with their fingers and feel with their, their hands, or they could, they could see it. Whereas God requires his people to live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And if there's anything in today's um, religious environment it's a it's a emphasis of the feeling and a neglect of faith and what i can't see i do not embrace but what i see and what i feel i embrace and i hold on to the dark ages were a time of history when civilization digressed in morals in art and in music and that's what was happening in the dark ages and i believe that led into the dark ages um, there was little or nothing of value in art or language or literacy or music that came out of the Dark Ages. Human, the human race actually digressed in its intelligence during those days. It was a time when the quality of worship was deteriorating and men embraced what they could observe with their senses. It's significant to me, and I hope that you'll ponder this, that in this time of darkness... Musical instruments in public corporate worship became both the signal and the driver or the, both the partial cause and the effect of that apostasy that led into those dark ages 
and cause the light to become very dim that was spiritual. The world in those days became a super dark place because when men as a whole depart and violate the instructions that God gave the church in the New Testament, the principles of worship that were outlined in the message I gave you this morning, um, men digress in their intelligence. The human race goes backwards when we live that way and when we're worshiping something other than the true and living God. Consider this verse from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 18. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And if Jesus gave us the instructions he did about worship, and he said that there's a time coming when men won't worship in this mountain, they're going to worship in another place, and they're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And he, he set those directives, and the Apostle Paul gave us a practical outworking of that mandate. Um, when we remove that, we have a lot of problems, and we see that today. Look at the landscape of today, and, and don't let this word scare you of postmodernism. I'll, I'll try to define that for you here a little bit. But look at where we're at today. We're in the same exact pattern as they were going into the Dark Ages. Art has deteriorated to a blob of paint, scratches. We're being called the dumbest generation. There's a reason. There's a reason why this book was written. And I believe that to be accurate from, from my perception. Look at the music of the churches. I'll say more about that on Sunday evening. Certainly we're entering into a second dark age of history. And unless men return to the foundations of the scripture and of Christianity, unless they return to a biblical worship, we will continue to go down into the darkness and the light will get dimmer. Unless we shine our light, unless the foundation is Jesus Christ and his principles are what we live by, our house is going to fall, both as individuals and as churches. There will be no remedy for global Christianity without repentance, only a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. That's what the Hebrews letter says. Now John Price, he's the author of this book, Albright and New Worship, he said in regards to the Catholic Church of the Dark Ages and of the present, he said their eyes were candles, excuse me, their eyes, for the eyes there were idols, candles were various man-made ceremonies, magnificent church architecture, and the host transformed into the body of Christ, for the touch were images and relics, for the smell there was the incense, and for the ears there was the use of musical instruments, especially the organ. So he's simply equating what's happening today as what happened in the past in the Catholic Church. They had to have idols. They had to have relics. They had to have the host or the wafer. And then they added the instrument because it fit right into the philosophy of the day. And it fell right, in, fell right into the, the, the senses and, and having to, to have something to feel and taste. It fit right into that. It would seem that musical instruments in the church fit right into the sensuous worship that is so contrary to the faith. We must this morning remember and be careful that our worship is based on obedience. With a physical or versus a physical or a mystical experience based on the sensuous nature of our feelings and our emotions. It doesn't mean that feelings don't come into worship, but they're a byproduct of a commitment of obedience to Jesus Christ. We don't want to put our feelings out in front and the center and make that our worship experience. That will take us into and down a road we cannot go on if we expect our house to stay on the rock. Notice that God is seeking for people who will worship him in a proper and biblical way. And if God is searching for it, and if God is seeking for it, and if you are searching and looking for something, it means it's hard to find. It means it's a rarity. God is looking for people. He's seeking for those who will worship him, not by their senses, but by spirit and truth and obedience. 
On April 24, 2011, 100,000 people flooded into St. Peter's Square to celebrate Easter with Pope Benedict the Sixth. Excuse me, the Eleventh. The Father is seeking, seeking for those who will worship Him not with relics, not with images, not with a wafer of Catholicism, not with the Eucharist, not with that which I can touch, taste, smell, or feel. But He's looking for someone who worships Him with an honest spirit. We're not looking this morning for a sensuous, emotional experience to give us a buzz when we're worshiping God. But rather a powerful and a quiet experience that gives a lasting change to the life and gives a long-lasting stability to the soul. The modern church of today is a sensuous and emotionally driven church that's devoid of faith. They rely on their feelings rather than on their faith. And the question comes, and Jesus said it clearly, He says, when the Son of Man cometh, Will he find faith on the earth? Or will he find a lot of people looking to gratify their senses? I'm going to move quickly now through the reformers. Um, the Reformation happened uh, coming out of the Dark Ages. And the reason the Reformation happened, I think I can safely say this, is Johann Gutenberg printed the Bible on his printing press. And in those days, the Word of God was scarce. But these men like Johann Gutenberg, men like John Wycliffe, men like uh, William Tyndale, he got the word of God into the common man's hands in their language. The ideology that was produced by what those dear men did and the sacrifice they made with their own blood, they were chased all over the country and they sought to burn them and destroy them. But the word of God didn't get in the hands of the common people and they began to get the light of God's word and look where they went. History soared and the human race um, was propelled forward in, in many, many ways because people got the light of the gospel in their lives. John Wycliffe in the 1300s saw ceremonies and images and the organ as a revert back into Judaism. He saw lukewarm people in the church. He saw bells and organs and chimes as something that moved the emotions, but not the spirit. John Huss in... Uh, 1300s, early 1400s, he complained that the church's people gaped at pictures, investments, and chalices. Their ears were filled with the sounds of bells and organs um, that incited them more to dance than to live a life of piety. Martin Luther in the 14 and 1500s, a father of the Reformation, was a, was a distressed man, and his focal point was on the doctrine of justification. He could see nothing else. It's interesting that he was one of two men that refused to move the instruments out of the church. He wanted the pictures. He wanted the chalices. He wanted all the art. He wanted the music to remain as long as he was justified by faith. He was one of the few. Um, even so, uh, uh, Martin Luther often led his congregation in a cappella music. He loved it. And he wrote that, that song for us. We still sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Powerful song. Um, he dabbled with sensuous idolatry and spirituality. He wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted to live a life of faith, and he wanted to be justified, but he still wanted his fingers in the Catholic Church. He wanted to see God by faith. He wanted to be able to touch and feel religion. A man by the name of Karlstadt was born in 1480. Um, he was a contemporary of Luther, and he was a powerful man. He was a charismatic man a man who could explain truth and write about it. He was a powerful theologian. Um, and he, he battled with Luther on this subject of, of the sensuous nature of music and the spiritual nature of worship. Um, he actually blamed the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. On, uh, he, he blamed the music of the church, the instrumental music of the church, for the free fall of the church into the dark ages. He saw that, and I think he saw it clearly. Uh, he saw instruments in the church as a gauge of apostasy. Look what we have today in our postmodern society. I think we can gauge the condition of the church by the depths they go to and how they use their instruments. Um, we're in a deep apostasy. You can see that. 
Karlstadt said the concentration of instrument playing robbed a man of his ability to worship. It seems like Luther was focused on a reform of justification while others in his day were looking to reform on New Testament worship. I'm so pure starting to see this morning, this afternoon, the connection of how musical instruments in public worship has a close connection with other essential elements of worship that are not associated with spirit and truth. It's kind of interesting, while Luther was hiding in the Wartburg Castle, a movement known as the Wittenberg Movement uh, broke out, and it was quite successful, and it was based on the ideology of Karl Stadt's writing. In other words, he was putting emphasis on spirit and truth in connection to worship. That movement took hold, and they removed all the instruments out of the Lutheran church. Well, when Luther came out of hiding, he came right back to his old ways. He was a powerful and charismatic man. He convinced men to move those organs right back in. And uh, life returned to normal in the, in the um, Lutheran church. In those days, churches were trashed. Organs and images were thrown out. And a semblance of New Testament worship took its place. It's amazing the cleansing that took place as the church moved out of the dark ages um, and came toward the enlightenment. Um, how they dealt with this subject of, of, of instruments in the church. Uh, there's almost riots that broke out to try to cleanse the church of that which they believed was causing them to worship in a sensuous nature. Nick Ulrich's Wingley agreed and embraced this man named Karl Stat's position. He acknowledged that the New Testament was the final instruction for how God was to, worship, to be worshipped. He had the organ removed from his church. But he took another extreme view. He said, if God said that we are to worship with our heart and sing in our hearts to the Lord, then that can't be done with the mouth. So I think for 70 years in Zwingli's church, they didn't sing any songs because they believed that um, they, they, they improperly um, interpreted that passage. Menno Simons came along in 1496 to 1561, and he believed and taught the same thing. If music, um, if, if instruments were not to be found, were not found in the Bible in the New Testament, we better not bring them into Christian worship. So he argued on the basis of silence. If the Bible didn't tell us to do it, we better not do it. John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, embraced the teachings of Karl Stett, and he said the only thing to accompany uh, the voice is an obedient heart. We agree with that. We agree with, disagree with a lot of things that John Calvin said. But John Calvin had it straight on musical instruments in the church. His enormous influence led to the exclusion of musical instruments, including Reformed churches in Geneva, the Low Countries, English, and the American Puritans, the Separatists, and the Scottish Presbyterians. He said, we must look to Christ and his apostles alone for how we are to worship in the church. In 1571, the, the, the French Protestant church, which was a Calvinistic church, formed under the influence of Calvin. They eventually numbered 2,100 churches. Some of these churches had 10,000 people each in them. All of them sang a cappella music. So I hope you understand that this is not a doctrine cooked up by the Anabaptist church. I mean, this was standard procedure in the Protestant church after the Reformation, um, and that, that um, cleansing lasted for 200 years. They were able to, to, to keep the instruments out of the church for 200 years after the Reformation. John Calvin said there's not a word to be found in Scripture concerning the anointing of the musical instruments, the crosses, the caps, the togas, the unclean purification, cloisters, chapels, organs, chorale music, masses, offerings, and ancient usages. He saw them as the lurking wolf. And um, he encouraged that they stay out, probably used some force to keep them out. We could follow a lot of organizations this, this afternoon. Um, up to the 1700s, um, we see this same thought process. Um, the Puritans, both in England and America, followed this, this teaching and this belief that we sing a cappella music when we get together for church. 
and uh, we sing in our hearts with grace to the Lord. The days of the Dark Ages were very dark days of fear and superstition. Why? Because they didn't have the light of God in their lives. They were trusting in something they could feel and see. They were really no different than the pagans in that they wanted an idol that they could get their hands around instead of simply believing what God said. The grand and glorious cathedrals of those days and today echo with the hopelessness of a dark song. For they could only sing what was in their hearts. And there was a lot of darkness in hearts in those days. And I say this carefully. The Reformation was a bright but incomplete light for a land and for a world that was in complete darkness and gross darkness. And I think the Reformation was the beginning of the Spirit of God moving to move light into that darkness. Some took that light and ran with it and found a relationship and a worship of faith of God Almighty. Others, out of fear, refused to go all the way, but nevertheless they had a new light that they didn't have before because they had the Scriptures. The Reformation divided the church into three parts. There were Catholics, there were Protestants, and there were Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were not like the Protestants, nor nor were they like the Catholics. John Calvin's focus or his focal point was limited to two points, and that was basically what he wanted to talk about. Um, He liked to talk about predestination, predestination and absolute sovereignty of God. So his focal point was there. Martin Luther liked to talk about justification by faith. His focal point were there. But the Anabaptists, when they got the light, they opened the Scriptures, and their focal point was the Scriptures. And they had an open heart to receive and do what God told them to do. He sought to make the entire Scripture their focus. He sought to obey them all. Anabaptism was started by highly educated people and soon was led by uneducated men and peasants. Persecution scattered these people. They were always kept moving. They could never find a home. They could never find a place to call their own. They could never stay there very long. And because of this, they had a hard time identifying their own movement. They didn't have time to sit and write books. They didn't have time to compose songbooks and put Notes down that were in order that they could hand to another generation that could sing the same songs. Nevertheless, while they were scattered across Europe, some went to the Alsace and some went to the Palatinate in Germany. And in that time, from 1500 to 1700, Anabaptists wrote some 2,000 songs. Uh, 750 of those songs were written uh, between 1520 in 1570, at the height of the persecution that came out of the Reformation, um, they were writing songs. Um, some of them were written in the Swiss castle by, by Swiss brethren. They sang about their experiences. They sang about the things that they valued. They sang about, sang about uh, being steadfast. They sang about the love of Christ. They sang about their experiences like we all do. During this time period of the Reformation, The light, I don't think, was limited to the church. It actually became salt and light for society, and some of the greatest works of the classic works of art and music were produced during this time. It was was called the Baroque period, where you were seeing works like Handel's Messiah being, being penned. And I think that was an indirect result of the light of God that came on men during the, during the, um, dark ages. Uh, you had Bach that surfaced during that time. Vivaldi, you've heard that uh, those classic songs called the Four Seasons. I love those songs. They're they're, they're beautiful, and there's a depth to them that's incredible. Uh, came out of the Enlightenment when when light came, and men responded to that, and the inject result was was the explosion of great works of art and music. Um, in 1688, you had Mozart come on the scene, and Beethoven, John Bunyan. Uh, wrote the Pilgrim's Progress during that time of, of enlightenment. The thing that united Anabaptists uh, during uh, the period between the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment um, was their songbook. And we know it today as the Ausbund. Um, some 2,000 songs were composed and put into that book, and that was handed off to people on the run. And so what would happen is one group would sing it this way, 
they would hand it off and there'd be others in hiding. They'd sing it this way and somebody else got it and they'd sing it this way. They'd take a ballad that they heard off the streets, one group would, and, and another group would take a tune that they knew and they'd sing it to that. And because they were running so much, they could not categorize those songs or give a common tune to it. They clung to that hymn book. It united them. Some groups still cling to it. And the most complete form is printed in 1583. Many more martyr songs. There's a number of factors why we cannot use that book anymore. Um, we could not use it as a generational gift to our children. Um, as I said, the first reason was many, many of the people who wrote the songs were on the run. Um, no one ever had time, number two, or took time to publish the words and put it to, to music. And number three, it was written in a language that none of us understood. So while the Amish sing it today and sing out of that book, it's my understanding that very few of them know what they're singing. We have a brother in our church that's an ex-Amishman, and he said that it's interesting that every Sunday morning, the low bleed, the opening song of the Amish church, starts on the East Coast, and for three hours it's sung solid across the country. Beautiful song if you would speed it up. And yet, I asked that brother, do you know what that song says? He said, absolutely not. I have no idea how to interpret that song. What does the Bible say? If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, or how shall we know what the song says if we don't have it in our language? It's a treasured book that served its purpose for a time, and today it's been laid aside because we have songs that we know that edify us. And while it has a colorful and a beautiful history, it would be worthless for us to try to sing those songs without understanding them. Many of our hymns today come from the Puritans and from the Separatists. And we enjoy them today in spite of the fact they don't come from Anabaptist people. The, 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 the um, 18th century or the Enlightenment, the 1700s were those years that we call the Enlightenment when men rose and I think the human progress moved forward in those days because of the light of God. Um, as a result of that, um, like I said earlier, churches kept, Protestant churches kept instruments out of their church for 200 years. John Knox moved up into um, Scotland and started Protestant churches up there. They were so against the instruments in their church, they actually kept them out another 100 years beyond what the rest of the Protestant church did. But it's interesting what broke their wall down. We'll get into that a little bit. The Enlightenment was a time when it seems like God showed a wonderful light, a powerful light on the world of darkness. It was during that time that powerful preachers rose up and preached repentance and preached um, sermons on a holy life. If you ever get the privilege, uh, you can get this on YouTube. You can find a man who reenacts uh, John Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of a, of a living God. Tremendous sermon came out of the Enlightenment. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, John Newton, uh, the man who was a slave trader, who was gloriously saved, he wrote, um, wrote the song Amazing Grace. He lived during the period of the Enlightenment. Um, George Whitfield uh, was a son of the Enlightenment. Uh, powerful hymn writers and poets, Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, uh, William Cowper, um, the depressed songwriter that lived on the same property as John Newton. Uh, John Newton actually had him writing songs to try to keep his spirits up. He was suicidal. Wrote beautiful songs. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders perform. Uh, such, a, such a beautiful treasured hymn was written by um, John Newton's songwriter, William Cowper. Lived during the Enlightenment. Rob Robinson wrote that book, Come Now Found, or that song, Come Now Found of Every Blessing, written in the Enlightenment. Um, the doctrine that came from the Word of God and the Enlightenment came in the Enlightenment um, had a huge impact in all of society. Isaac Watts was born um, in 1674. He lived during the Enlightenment. He was just a little man, um, four foot eight inches. Um, if you ever get a chance to read his book, it's called The, um, the Improvement of the Mind. Tremendous little book. You would benefit by reading it. Uh, he was an English nonconformist, uh, similar to what John Bunyan was. He wrote over a thousand hymns in his lifetime uh, to carry and perpetuate doctrine. 
He wrote about, he sang about the things that he treasured. And he wrote songs, and those songs have been passed down to us in our churches for our benefit. Many came to America um, with pilgrims and Puritans and nonconformist Protestant groups. They brought these songs of Isaac Watts on the ships, and they came to American churches and they sang them. Isaac Watts, I believe, loved God, and he saw the light of God in nature. Uh, he wrote about the sea. He wrote about the sky and the flowers. Um, one song he wrote is Behold the Lofty Sky. It's a beautiful song. Behold the morning sun, air the blue heavens. He wrote about the majesty of God. Behold the glories of the Lamb. He used poetry to warn sinners before Jehovah's awful throne. He gave truth about the blood of Christ that was accurate, was spiritual, was scriptural. He wrote that song, Not All the Blood of Beasts. I love that song. Isaac Watts did with, you, with music what Paul did before Felix. He reasoned in his hymns of righteousness and temperance and judgment through faith in Christ by using the art of music. He loved life. He loved creation. He rejoiced and wrote through his poetry praises to the Creator. He further projected into the future and wrote about the great time when the King will come and encouraged us with that doctrine. And we still enjoy it today. Isaac Watts believed in the concept, the New Testament concept of a cappella singing. Charles Spurgeon also came in this time. And with all the rest that spoke with one voice, Charles Spurgeon supported them. None of them had an aversion. I shouldn't say none of them. Some of the earlier ones did. But many of them had no aversion to musical instruments. But they had a tremendous aversion and to bring them into church. And they saw what would happen if, if that happened. There was a Puritan by the name of, of, of Cotton Mather in the early 1700s. He said, because we have no command, um, in effect, says, I will not hear the melody of your organs. In other words, God will not hear your worship if you're going to bring an organ along with it. Now, maybe that's a strong statement, but I think we can understand what he was saying. He says, if we admit instruments, how can we not accept all that went with Old Testament worship? He also suggested that there was no offices given in first given in first Corinthians for the music master of the church. In those days it took seventy men to play the organ. Uh, it was said that they, they sweated and sweated, they worked a day's work in there trying to pump those bellows so that the people could worship. There's no office in the New Testament in the New Testament for that type of an office. So Cotton Mather was arguing that, that because there's no office in the New Testament, we shouldn't be doing that. And I agree with him. Why did most of our hymns come from the Puritans and the Separatists and the Methodists? I think God uses us in spite of who we are. And God is not limited in any denomination to do his work. I think we all know that with our mouth. I'm not sure that we know that in our heart sometimes. But he will use many people in many places who make a conscious choice to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he'll use them in his program. And I hope that we can maintain somewhat of the same attitude that if a person is following Christ, let's maybe not worry so much about their Mennonites. And I say that carefully. Lest we get in our heads that we are the chosen people of God. God has used many people in many years in many places that were not a part of our faith to bless us. These people followed Christ in times of great difficulty and because of their sacrifice, we enjoy the gift they gave us today. Now we're moving into the 1800s now, the 19th century. It was called the Romantic Period. It was part of the Enlightenment. Um, Chopin came during those days, Chavolsky, Mendelssohn, those were the classical people that were coming out of the Enlightenment. In 1837, we had D.L. Moody born, and uh, he went on his revival tours with Ira Sankey. And they took along a pump organ in their revivals. And Moody preached, and Ira sang, and Ira played. We could say a lot of good things about this great man of God, 
and I call him a great man of God. I think he was a true preacher of righteousness that called men to repentance. Their revivals were very sobering times. They were not, they were not, um, flitty times. They were not times of entertainment. It was said that when you went into a revival service of Moody and Sankey, that, that you had been very sober. It was a very sober service. However, D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey's revival movement struck the final blow to John Knox's stand against musical instruments in Scotland. And under the revival movements of Moody and Sankey, the wall fell in John Knox's churches, ending 300 years of vicious resistance to them. It was in these times that Fanny Crosby lived. Horatius Bonar wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, C. Elliott wrote, Just As I Am. Um, he lived and died in this great era that was so important to congregational singing. It was also a time when William Bradbury lived in 1859. Uh, William Bradbury took the song, Jesus Loves Me. Um, it was written in the diary of two sisters that were evidently ministering to children in um, West Point Military Academy. They happened upon this song, and uh, William Bradbury wrote uh, the beautiful tune to Jesus Loves Me. Now, once we know the history of Jesus Loves Me, we would say, how could a song that came out of a military academy become so precious to us? But once again, God has strange ways that he ministers to us. And how many children don't know that song, and how many parents are blessed by it today? We come quickly then to the 21st century and the age of modernism. And you see that on our chart here. We could use one word to describe the movement of modernism, and it's the word logic. And it is the time when we came out of the great light that, that produced the Enlightenment and the philosophers and the theologians that wrote in those days that were starting to depart from the faith started sowing ideas into people's heads. And men began to think, how can we live without God? How can we solve our problems without God? How can we stop being liable to God? It was in those days of modernism that psychology found its roots. It was in those days that men didn't need God anymore. They began looking for other ways that they could, they could, um, could live their lives. There wasn't many songs written in the age of modernism. We have that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, written in 1923. The modernistic movement was very humanistic in nature, and the Mennonite church fought desperately. Uh, men like John Horsch wrote literature to try to, to preserve the church in this time of great apostasy. Very humanistic time. Um, and, and what I would call the start of the great falling away from the faith and doctrine of the church. But I want to move quickly now to the 21st century, to a time and an era that we call postmodernism. And we could use a couple words to define this period of time. And we could, we, we could use those words. These words would be confusion and chaos. And I think there's some disagreement on, on how this movement got started. And I would still say I'd still blame the philosophies and the music of modernism that produced the age of postmodernism. But one person described it like this. He said, there is so much information coming from so many different angles that this whole thing is is a confusing mess. Nobody knows what's right anymore. And as we live and continue to live in the age of postmodernism, that started around 1940. We're finding out that that description is quite true. It started with false revival movements by men like Oral Roberts and William Branham uh, in 1946 uh, to 1958 versus the Reformation. In the Reformation, at least men found a foundation by going back to the Word of God and the interpreter says, this is what it says. They can at least find a reference point today. They're making a new reference point. They're rejecting the Scriptures. They have reference points, maybe that this man is trying to direct people, and this man, instead of turning to Scripture, they're turning to men. And there's a lot of men, and they're following a lot of people. 
The common men could read the Scriptures. Today they have the Scriptures. But men have refused to go all the way with God. And when we refuse to go all the way with God, God's going to send delusion to our lives if we don't embrace the truth that we have. In the great apostasy of postmodernism, an entirely new counterfeit was created. The Scriptures were deconstructed. And common men were deliberately deceived to follow after something else other than God. The birth of the charismatic movement started in 1906. And men began to seek experience as their reference point rather than God's word. Now in Ephesians 2.2, there's a clock here. Has an hour gone by? Wow. Okay, We'll, we'll move through this quickly. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 2, it says, Wherein in times past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What is an age this morning, or this afternoon? We walked according to the course or the age of this world. The world in this passage is the aeon or the age the age is a specific block of history shared that, that, that the common, it's a specific block of history shared that, that shared a common belief factor. I'll say it that way. A, a common belief structure. It's a, it's a block of history that shared a common belief structure. So, so the Dark Ages had a, a common belief structure. The Enlightenment had a common belief structure. Modernism had a common Belief structure. Postmodernism had their belief structure, and they're constantly changing. So, art and music and literature in each of these blocks of history revealed the belief system or the belief structure. In other words, if you wanted to know what these people believed, look at what they practice. Now, I say this carefully, and I hope I say it humbly. If you bring me your book collection this morning, wherever you are, and bring me your music, your music collection, I'll tell you something about the way you believe. And that's very sobering. I'll tell you what you believe by what you read and what you listen to. Not what you read casually, what you love. What you listen to all the time. What you read, I'll tell you what you believe. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people in the church that believe in this belief structure because of what they're reading, because of what they're listening to. Ideas have consequences. The printing of the scriptures produced the doctrine and philosophy that resulted in the Reformation. The Reformation produced the, the literature and the doctrine that produced the Enlightenment. The literature of the modernism and the modernists produced the Dark Ages. And if we're reading that and we're loving that and we're listening to that and we're loving it, we will be part of the course of this world. I'll say more about confusion Saturday night. Sunday night. You know what happened about 1950? A man by the name of Fats Domino steps on the world stage and started... The whole movement of rock and roll music. I said postmodernism started about 1940. The charismatic movement took a hold in postmodernism. The rock and roll movement um, got on its feet during that time. It was during that time that gospel music got its start. And I think I'm just going to close here real shortly. But when Ira Sankey and D.L. Moody died, there was a void left in the gospel revival movement. And what happened? Men who were not sober took the pulpit. Charles Alexander and Mr. Rodiver were now in charge of the music. And instead of having a sober service, they started cracking jokes. They started laughing. They started creating entertainment in the churches. Instead of having a time to repent and a clear message of preaching from the scriptures, now we have a real good, feel-good service. The charismatics started doing all of their things, and they focused on experience rather than on faith. 
Pretty soon, you had the Florida boys. You had the Blackwood brothers. You had Henry and Hazel Slaughter. You had the Chuck Wagon gang. And they started a new kind of country music with a country feel. There was the Stamps Baxter movement group that started a publishing house, started publishing gospel music that could be sung easily in churches. And with that music, they started producing muses that they could clap their hands and they could stomp their feet. And it fit like a glove with the charismatic movement. And all these movements came together and you had all this confusion. The only thing it didn't do is line up with New Testament teaching. Jake Hess was a modern mover and shaker in the southern gospel music. And he was one of the first ones that started making faces at the congregation and started laughing and cracking jokes. And the sobriety movement of those church services went down to zero compared to what was going on in D.L. Moody's day. These were spiritually shallow preacher, uh, teachers and singers that were singing uh, spiritually shallow music and producing spiritually shallow people. I was talking to Dwight here tonight. One of the things that opened my eyes a lot to some of the music I loved is when I got on YouTube and started looking at the people that were singing, I decided maybe, I don't know, I had a way of changing my mind in a hurry. Um, it's interesting. Music is the perfect tool to spread ideology, and it does it very effectively. And if you get some false doctrine mixed into a psyched-up song, a beautiful song that makes us relax and makes us tap our foot, we're not thinking so much about what we're hearing in doctrine. We're thinking about what we feel. And we start worshiping the feeling instead of making sure that doctrine is pure and clean. Bill Gaither, he was a Nazarene. Gospel music was actually coming, losing people, losing money, till Bill Gaither stepped on the scene again in the 1970s. He got it going again with his homecoming gatherings, and Rolling Stone magazine actually recognized Bill Gaither for the top 50 highest grossing concerts in By 1977, the profits in gospel ministry were $80 By the year 2000, it was $1 billion in profits. This revival movement that once was a holy movement now became a business. And people were no longer focused on pure doctrine to help the people. They were focused on their pocketbooks. I asked the question to Dwight this morning, and I hope this isn't offensive to anybody, but As much as I love Southern Gospel music and as much as I have in the past, I've asked the question, is Southern Gospel music the marijuana that leads to the harder harder drugs? And I think in my experience it was. Um, The movement brought a lot of compromise and it still does. Why is it? You can go on the Internet and verify this. Why is it that Southern Gospel music, they're asking the question on the Internet, Why has this become a cover for the gay movement? There's a connection here. Some of Southern Gospel's top singers have come and been exposed for who they really are. Kirk Talley was one of them. Beautiful boys, beautiful uh, talent there. And yet it was discovered that in the days he sang, he was a homosexual. What about CCM? It was in 1967 that a man named Ralph Carmichael began to revolutionize the evangelical church by introducing rock music with Christian music. I want to go back to what I said about Southern gospel music. It may come up again. But men who understand rhythm patterns are saying this. I don't understand this. I don't think most of you understand this. But those that do know and understand are saying that rock, the rock beat, the soft rock beat is in Southern Gospel music. It's there. And so technically, in some cases, 
those who are involved in that probably are listening to a form of rock music. It has a way of drawing us in to the confusion. Ralph Carmichael decided to introduce rock music with Christian music. He defined music as neither good or bad, but rather immoral. And he says, I feel I must write in whatever idiom will be the most effective for Jesus' sake. That was the words of Ralph Carmichael. He says, our message stands the same, but the vernacular communication tools must change in order to be relevant. In other words, we must have rock music because this is what the world likes. This is what people like. We must mix that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the early 70s, three talented men, Thurlow Spur, Ralph Carmichael, and Bill Gaither had a lot of influence of transitioning the evangelical church into what we know as CCM. The men I listen to, the men who seem to understand the dynamics and the structure of music, are saying that CCM is rock music. That's what they're saying. I can't verify that. Here we have the illustration of the sandwich. And if you want a dog or a horse to take medicine, you put the pill into an apple or a sandwich and give him the sandwich or the apple. They'll eat the pill. I'm afraid it's like that with music. Music is the care of doctrine. If you want to carry the doctrine into people you don't, that are unsuspecting, give it to him in a package of music. We'll see that on Sunday night. Bill Gaither knocked down the walls of separation that once stood tall and strong, and he made fun of and mocked those who were trying to maintain sound doctrine, and he said that's not what matters anymore. We want to give them the music. And he made fun of them that insisted on pure doctrine. Today's church as a whole is completely unrecognizable compared to 50 years ago. There's little gospel. There's a little call to repentance. The focal point is praise and worship. And many people are seeking an experience rather than a worship of faith and truth. I may say more Sunday evening about this. And I'll say this yet. CCM has recently morphed again into something else called mysticism. The music of CCM is taking on a softer tone. The music starts quietly. It's very repetitive. Slowly builds into a stronger and stronger but subtle beat. The people are lulled into a deep trance. While the female vocalists sway in movement similar to the pattern of a slithering snake. I've seen this happen. Being identified as a Hindu practice. So we've got the mixing of musical instruments with the voice. We have the charismatic movement. We have the tongues movement. Now we have the Hindu movement mixing with Christianity. Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation Music are leading the charge into an unbiblical, mystical experience through the use of music that is not consistent with God's word. They're taking children on tours to heaven. They're making heaven into a candy factory for children. They're projecting people into different locations and experiencing the very voice and the touch and the eyes of Christ through the use of music. One person I know personally, his wife, was taken from a church into her living room where she met Jesus Christ and was embraced by him and said, I love you. These are the kind of experiences that are happening in postmodernism. Listen, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. What was that sign? It was a sign of the resurrection. It was the greatest sign that Jesus ever gave to this world. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. They seek after an experience. But we seek Christ crucified. All of this is consistent with the spirit of postmodernism. A mixture of the sacred and the profane. A mixture of, of the simple and the complex. Men who are smart about the wrong things. In a dumbed-down generation, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In closing, we do what we do for a reason, traditionally, 
and biblically. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's important to keep our hymn books uncontaminated. It's important to sing together as a congregation with vigor and strength. It's important to maintain songs that are strong in content and doctrine, but simple in rhythm. What I'm telling you this morning, this afternoon, is verified by the Bible, by the church and secular history, and as we'll find out, it's verified also by science on Sunday evening. Thank you for your attention this evening or this afternoon. It's time to close. I'll turn the time over to Brother Dwight.